0: We 're all ordinary people we 're all ordinary people sometimes we view others as extraordinary and I know I know extraordinary people and because of uh, not because of but along with the years that i 've been privileged to be a pastor of the church that 's one of the places in the church where I have had the privilege of meeting a great number of extraordinary people and there 's one remarkable Truth or one remarkable fact. If I ever identify people or say to someone, You've, you seem quite a bit extraordinary, and that is this, they almost always will deny that, that they're not extraordinary. On the other hand, I've sometimes met in the church too, and outside the church, folks who are not reluctant to tell me that they are extraordinary. Because of what they've done, because of who they are, because of the wealth they've accumulated, because of the power that they have, the influence they believe is a part of who they are. I've met some extraordinary people as well. If you met him in front of his house, you might not recognize him unless you knew the neighborhood. But if you hadn't seen his picture and you looked at where he lived, it's a house that was built... He had built in 1958, paid $30,000 for it, and he still lives there to this day. But if you wouldn't recognize Warren Buffett's picture, you wouldn't know, and you'd be surprised that he would live in that place. An extraordinary person who claims and says that he wants to be ordinary, so ordinary that out of that great wealth that he has generated over his lifetime, He's made it clear that he's leaving nothing to his children. Foundations and trusts, but no other gifts to them. There are remarkable ways in which the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Remarkable ways. Sometimes it's in the wrong way, in ways that are painful and hurtful. There's pictures of all kinds of ordinary people. And we could put up pictures from this congregation. We could have put up pictures from the activities in which all of you are engaged in your lives, whatever they are, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's retirement, whether it's volunteers, ordinary people. And there's not a thing wrong with recognizing that truth about who we are. And I believe that most of us would say that's, that's okay, that's comfortable, that describes well who we are and what our values reflect. It was probably Judith Guest's book in the 1970s that elevated that idea and that concept and changed our thinking about the ordinary. If you've read the book or had you seen the movie, it's about a family typical suburban, middle-class family. Ordinary people, she says in the book. Ordinary people who one day have their lives turned upside down when the eldest son of the family drowns in a boating accident where the other family is present in a boating uh, outing on Lake Michigan. And from there on out, the rest of the narrative and the movie reflects very well what happened to ordinary people when a tragedy changed the ordinariness of their lives. This was the picture that was on the front page of the Oregonian uh, and was also on the front page of the New York Times this week. You recognize the picture don't you? It's the funeral for a nine-year-old girl an ordinary girl doing ordinary things a week ago Saturday in Tucson Arizona Five days later, her parents and her brother are attending her funeral. The picture that was on the front page of the Oregonian, I think it was yesterday or Friday, was another picture of, should have been ordinary, small elementary schoolboy. This young lad was attending the funeral of his father, the police chief in Rainier, who died in a gun in a uh, violent, uh, in a robbery uh, uh, tried to prevent a robbery or take someone into custody about 10 days ago. Those are the tragedies, just some of the tragedies that shape and change the ordinariness of our lives into something that is deeply and profoundly and sadly extraordinary. On the other side of that are some remarkable stories of people, ordinary people, who have done extraordinary things. And there's a couple of them in the reading today from the second chapter of Joshua. One is Joshua, who sends the spies and where, if you're following along with the small group series or if you have the study guides for that, you're aware of this, but let me just kind of, let me quickly go over the, the story. Last week, Joshua was prepared to move into the promised land. This week, they're getting a little closer. And Joshua and the Israelites stand on the threshold of the promised land and they're looking out across the Great Rift Valley out to the west and there they can see the promised land on the horizon, maybe 75, 50, no, not that far, maybe 30 miles out in the distance. But between where they stand and the land is, is the Great Rift Valley that they have to get across and in the bottom of that valley is the Jordan River and positioned right along the Jordan River is the city of Jericho. And it's a fortress, and they know we can't get from here to there without getting past the Canaanites who are big and mighty and who won't let us take their land. And so Joshua identifies a couple of people, and he says, I want you to go uh, into the city, spend some time, tell me what's going on there, be able to come back and report. And we have the word that two men are sent secretly into the city. This is where the story gets most interesting. Because they don't go to spy out what the fortifications look like. They do not go to the encampment of the soldiers. They don't do any military espionage. Where they go is the first place they go is to the brothel. They go to the house of a prostitute. Now I'm not sure why that's the first thing that they do. I have some ideas. But it's in the Bible. So that's the first place that they go. Her name is Rahab. And Rahab uh, apparently has a, a good business. She not only does what she does according to the Bible; she probably also has a microeconomic model of weaving going on because she has flax that is drying. Flax being a that's a, 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 a plant that can be eventually woven into linens, and she's drying the flax uh, stalks up on her roof. It's a dangerous place to be. But the two men arrive there. They get involved in a conversation with Rahab, but she already knows who they are. And this is what she tells them I've heard about you, I know who you are. And I've learned that as you traveled to get out here, you came through the wilderness, and every resistance that you came across, you took them down. You defeated army after army, resistance after resistance. And now here you are coming into my city. But she's a very smart woman. And so this is what she says. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. And here's my offer. I will not turn you in. In fact, you're going to be safe here. Go up on the roof and hide underneath the flax. I'll pile that over the top of you. And when the authorities come looking for you, I'm going to tell them this. I'm going to tell them that you've already left. And that you went out to the Jordan River, and you're probably wandering around out there looking for a place to get across when you come back to take over our city. And they said, she said to them, if I do that for you, I do expect something in return, and this is what I expect. That when you do come back with your soldiers and your military forces, keep me safe. Don't kill me and my family. And take care of us. And they said, sure, we can do that. You take care of us, we'll take care of you. This is the kind of ethical and moral framework in which Rahab operates. And there's a lot of reasons you could think about what that means and the implications of all of that, but that's her framework for making this decision. Take care of me and my family. Who could argue with that? So the men are safe, the spies, the the authorities go out and they're wandering around someplace in the wilderness and they're sent off in some distant way and the two men who had come into the city go down the outside of the city wall because Rahab's house is built into the exterior wall. They go down, they leave, and they're safe. She does say to them, however, when they first meet, I know who you are. And what I know is this: that what you have done, and I've I've heard, and this is what she says. This is in verse ten of chapter two. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea for you for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. And don't you think that up until this very moment, Rahab was simply another ordinary person in the life and the daily activities in the city of Jericho. And there came opportunity for her to make some decisions about what her future would be and the ordinary gets elevated to the extraordinary. If any of us could have that conversation with Rahab, it might go like this. Rahab, what you did was exceptional. You put yourself at risk. You you hid the spies up on the roof of your house. You let them go down had you been caught, you would have been the death penalty for everybody. Rahab, you're an extra, extraordinary woman. If I had said that to her, I think I know how she might have answered. She probably would have said, I only did what I had to do. I only did what I had to do. Most ordinary people who do extraordinary things would say the same. I heard a young man say that it was the young man who had been an intern in uh, the uh, representative's uh, office, the the, the woman, uh, Gabrielle Giffords, who was shot in Tucson. And he was there. He was trained and had some first aid skills. He literally helped to save her life. When he was asked, how did you do that? That took a lot of courage because there was blood everywhere. He said, I only did what I had to do. We only do what we have to do. And once in a while, that opportunity and that moment gets placed in front of us. And the Bible is loaded with stories about those people. And you know their names. There was a man named Abram. He was asked to relocate from the Chaldean region of the Middle East, out by Iraq, and go over to Canaan on the seacoast. And God said, you need to go do that, Abram. And by the way, I'm going to change your name. You're going to be Abraham from here on out. Or there was nominally an orphaned Hebrew child of slaves placed into a basket, put in the river because his mom only hoped that somebody might pick him out of the water and would be safe, and he became the prince of Egypt His name was Moshe. We know him as Moses. Or there was another man, an ordinary Jewish man, very devout in his faith, very devout. He later made it clear in all of his conversations that he had done all of the right things in his life to be faithful. His name was Saul, but when he was no longer ordinary, we know him as St. Paul. The remarkable opportunities that are in front of us as God's people are usually ordinary moments, and we do ordinary things. And the results and the outcomes can sometimes be completely extraordinary. In some ways, he could have been a male version of Rahab. He was a man of great faith, great inspirational capacity. He was a pastor of a Baptist church, a very large Baptist church in the South. He was married, he had children. Yet for many, many years, he maintained an illicit sexual relationship with a woman And it went on and on. And it was one of those very badly kept secrets. And each year, about this time of year, on this particular weekend, I I read, I make it a practice to read a letter that he wrote. And he wrote it from jail in 1963 in April. It's a long letter, it's probably eight or twelve pages. Martin Luther King was in jail in 1963, in Birmingham. He was in the midst of the civil rights struggle, and he wrote a letter, a most compelling letter, to people of faith, rabbis, priests, and pastors. And he effectively said, where have you been when the struggle for human justice needs to take place? And why have you been criticizing, and why aren't you out there And he tells them this. The ones who will be there will be the old, the oppressed, and the battered Negro women. Symbolized in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses. And who responded with ungrammatical profundity to the one who inquired about her weariness. She said, My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. The ones who will be there will be the young high school and the college students, the young ministers of the gospel and a host of their elders, courageously and nonviolently sitting in a lunch counter, And willing to go to jail for their conscience' sake. And one day the South will know that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Christian heritage and bring us back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution. And the Declaration of Independence. That letter, written by a very flawed man who inspired tens of thousands of others, and who inspired very ordinary people to ride buses, to get involved in marches, to sit in lunch counters, and to say, This is not right very ordinary people like Rahab regardless of reputation regardless of vulnerability regardless of of sinfulness regardless of any other moral weakness are able to say this is what I need to do. Those of us who spend time in places like this who sit in church who gather at holy tables, who engage in prayer, who sing songs. Those of us who do that are in many ways those ordinary people as well. And for those of us who name the name of Jesus and honor the claims of faith on who we are and what we believe, then find ourselves in a precarious place because the obligation and the responsibility gets notched up. And I know what happens sometimes to those of us in the church. Do you know the word burnout? Anybody know that word? Yeah. And it happens in the church too, doesn't it? And sometimes we take all of this business about being the church and honoring Jesus and following God so seriously that we get so consumed in it that it's no longer a great deal of fun and we lose track of what it means and there are ways that we need to honor what that obligation is and to remember to tell ourselves we are ordinary people we're God's ordinary people created in God's image of course and to remind one another what it means about who we are and not to take ourselves all that seriously All of the stories about ordinary people, about their heroics, and about their capacity and capabilities. Finally, I'd like to summarize for you in three ways. First of all is this. From 1 Corinthians where St. Paul writes, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the opposite of what we believe is valued in this world. God chooses the opposite. People with moral flaws, people with ethical dilemmas, people who've made bad and poor decisions, but who nevertheless are able to say, this is what God wants me to do, and this is the right thing. Finally, this. God uses the flawed, the wounded, and the vulnerable to show that the power comes from God. This is from Second Corinthians. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that all of this surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed but never in despair. We're persecuted, never abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. God has this remarkable way of putting before us opportunity, moments, occasions when we get to say, I only did what I had to do. I only did what I had to do whether it's in your workplace whether it's in your school whether it's on the playground whether it's in your neighborhood whether it's in your family whether it's in the church we are simply God's ordinary people always invited to do extraordinary things And we only do what God asks us to do. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, it's our brother Jesus who told us, who taught us, whose life reflected the fact that what we think of as ordinary can occasionally become extraordinary. You give us the capacity for courage, for willingness to serve that otherwise we may not be capable of doing. We give you thanks for the strength that is exhibited in the lives of these great people of faith, whether they're named Rahab or Paul or Moses or Abraham, or whether their names are someone who sits behind us or next to us or whom we otherwise know. For that capacity and that gift, we give you thanks and pray in your holy name. Amen.